Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Second Age Podcast, where the Lorehounds, your guides to Tolkien's world of Middle-earth. I'm David. I'm John, and this is Chapter 5, The Last Alliance. In this episode, we've got three segments, uh, a discussion of Tolkien's wartime experience, some discussion of the themes of the weakness of the will of men and the loss of loved ones, and then we're going to deep dive into the war against Sauron. Before we get started, here's a quick reminder that you can send feedback to secondageatbaldmove.com, and we'll get to those questions on the final episode, which will be a Q&A. If you want to talk Tolkien sooner with us, join us over on the Bald Move Discord. There's a link in the show notes below and on baldmove.com. And be sure to get all the Bald Move and Lorehounds coverage of Rings of Power by subscribing to the Doug Too Deep podcast feed. We're going to be releasing exclusive content on this feed, so you don't want to miss out. Click on the link in the show notes or search for Doug Too Deep in your podcast application of choice. All right, so let's get started with our first segment and let's talk about Tolkien and his experience in World War One. All right, John, why don't you uh, lay it out for us? Sure. So England declared war on Germany in 1914. Tolkien was conflicted at this point because he wanted to help his country by enlisting, but he also wanted to finish his academic studies because he was right in the middle of his undergrad. I think that that must have been a tough choice for him, too, because I'm, I'm sure, you know, sort of the patriotic expectation of, of young Englishmen at the, that point was to enlist, like right away. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I think that was really tough for him. Yeah, But he found a program that would let him sort of do both. And so he was allowed to complete his studies while he completed his training at the same time. Okay. And he had begun to attempt fiction and poetry at this point. So this was a big developmental period for him, too. So is this where he started hanging out with these uh, tea club fellows? Yeah. So we mentioned the tea club in his biography chapter. Uh, But the tea club was sort of this... uh, club consisting of himself, Christopher Wiseman, G.B. Smith, and R.Q. Gilson, and about five others, but these four were sort of the core of it. Okay. And this was his fellowship. Right. And they were like all into poetry and painting and drawing and like super intellectually ambitious type young men, right? Yeah, I think they considered themselves Renaissance men. And it was about male companionship, but it was also about sort of improving yourself intellectually and challenging each other. Uh, And and I think he really took a ton away from this group. Right. And what is it? I know that we call it the T Club, uh, but its official acronym is TCBS, which stands for T Club and Barovian Society. Very exotic. Do we have any sort of, yeah, do we have any sort of indication of like what that was about? I don't know what a Barovian society is, so okay. <laughs> your, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> they like to drink tea. 
They like to hang out, right? I also like tea. I, I've okay. never heard of the Barovians. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we're gonna get a lot of fan, we're gonna get a lot of email about that. I'm sure. You know, I hope we do. <laughs> All right, very good. Very good. educate me. You're right. Hit us up. Hit us up. Okay, so uh, what happens then? So Tolkien takes his last exam. He goes into service. Uh, he ends up in the same general group, but not the same battalion as his friend G.B. Smith. They're in the Lancashire Fusiliers. Right. Do you know how to say that? <laughs> uh, you said it right. Lancashire Fusiliers. All right. Uh, he did not care for his peers at all. He said to Edith, uh, gentlemen are rare among the superiors, and even human beings are rare indeed. So I, I, this is sort of, I guess, I mean, like, he does come from polite English society. He's university educated. So, um, I mean, England was, is uh, a class-based society. So, yeah, he, this is probably the first time where he's really mixed with uh, a lot of um, folks from um, class, you know, not his class. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one reading of it. I also a little bit read it as they were being a little rude <laughs> about things. Uh, Jocular. And, yeah, alpha, um, yeah. If you know, if if we people politely call it locker room talk, right? Too politely, I think. Uh, and I think that he was not a big fan of that. You know, he was very prim and proper mm. about a lot of things. Right, much more genteel. And He's he, the I should. Yeah, and we should say that he was uh, commissioned as a second lieutenant in the in the Fusiliers in the Lancashire uh, mm. Fusiliers. Um, but like what? No, but he took a special job. Right, he started to specialize in signaling. Okay, so he was transmitting messages rather than you know directly fighting Actually during fighting. battle. Right? right. Okay. And so he would go from Morse code to carrier pigeons and everything in between. Mm. Signal flags and stuff like that. Well, I mean, it suits his, his background, right, as a linguist and a, and, and a communicator. Yeah, and maybe that's why he had the Eagles sending messages eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you, we can't discount that possibility. It's true. It's true. So at this point, he marries Edith because he's like, uh, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in war. And, you know, I, we love each other. We're going to get married. Right. That's what you do, right? You get married before you go off and die, right? <laughs> of course. Like, it's you know, just because crazy to me. That's what yeah. we should do. We should send young men off to go into brutal battle with no experience. And that's Is a that good thing irony alert? Society. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so he goes into combat. Uh, he's sent to France in 1916, in June 1916. And this is sort of the year where everything starts going down for him. Right, and this the Battle of the Somme, which is a major, major uh, engagement uh, during the war. Right, and uh, he enjoyed some of his new superiors a little better. He based Sam Gamgee off of one of his officers. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. And uh, he ended up going further into the war zone. It was raining, the ground's muddy, the war feels like inescapable, so he's really feeling this weight of war now, I think. Mm-hmm. So in July, Rob Gilson, remember that's one of the T-Club members, Okay, uh, his battalion uh, was killed after being open fi openly fired on. Uh, G.B. Smith was there too, but he survived that, that right. battle. Right. And so Tolkien and Smith were, were just devastated over this. You know, right. we've, we've lost the T-Club. I mean, this isn't just like um, a couple of buddies that you would meet up with at the bar and... and shoot the shit with this is like these guys were like really bonded to each other like they were like you know 
Binky Swear, Blood Brother type whole thing. Yeah, and I think they bonded to each other in sort of the immortality of youth, you know? Mm. We're, we'll be together forever. We'll be right making this art forever. You, mm. We're all going to change the world together. Okay. So Tolkien is in battle now, and he's surprised by the chaos of the actual battlefield. You know, the wires, he's trained in these perfect environments, but the wires right. in battle are <laughs> tangled and unmanageable. He's like, what? what is this? Right. Uh, he couldn't even use Morse code because it was so dangerous, so he had to use the visual me- methods of signaling. There's mm-hmm. decaying bodies all around. There's you know, mm-hmm. Trees and nature are destroyed. We know how much the trees mean to Tolkien. Right. And he was experiencing these horrors of the war for the first time. He described it as animal horror. I think when we start talking about um, the fight against Sauron, um, and definitely in Lord of the Rings, um, or Return of the King, I guess, is probably the, the correct book for this, is where Sam and, and Frodo are trying to cross these battle planes. And so this is really where that kind of imagery and, and mood and tone that he's writing about uh, probably comes from. It's probably inspired by these experiences. I think so. And I, and I think there's also a lot of points in the books, especially in the two towers when Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas are going off to find the hobbits and things like that. Mm, they're just so yeah. sleep deprived and so out of it. And, you know, right. there's a point in, in one of Tolkien's battles where he's up 48 hours before he gets yeah. to rest in a trench, not even in a bed, but like a trench. And his, his battalion suffers all these deaths, but he comes out miraculously without injuries. Right. You know, I, I think that this stuff carries out into his work and you see him understand what it feels like to be exhausted while you're doing this mission right yeah funny detail a little bit they there was a captured german uh, soldier in the camp and he offered the soldier water and the man corrected his german pronunciation because you know tolkien can't not work on his linguistics while he's (laughs) with a war prisoner (laughs) and isn't this when he starts writing some fragments of what will later enter into the legendarium yeah he's working on things like the story of arendil uh arendil the the story does not really reflect what became later but he's beginning this work uh, that will later become the Lord of the Rings and be the Silmarillion, rather. And and it's kind of, I mean, it has to be inspired by the Tea Club and, and this uh, camaraderie he has with his uh, his fellow members because they were they were influencing each other, driving each other, um, um, inspiring each other to do this stuff. To do this stuff by being art, to create art and be creative. Yeah, and he was sending these poems back and forth with, uh, you know, G.B. Smith and, and some of the other Tea Club members. They were giving him constructive feedback, like real constructive feedback, the kind that you actually want and not the, the friend. Oh, that was nice. It's crazy to think that they're in the middle of this, like, brutal war. And, and yet they're, like, you know, editing each other and, and, and giving each other uh, creative feedback. I think it's something that we should consider more often, which is that we're sending human beings to war, not bodies. Yeah. And these people are such rich humans. Right. And yet they're being sent to just kill each other. Right. Uh, Anyway, this is not a war podcast. No. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's important to to bring in that sense of humanity, because here Tolkien was, he he was, he was a whole human being, and they were these young men who were uh, in the prime, and and, uh, a whole whole nation's, yeah, being um, funneled into this, you know, grinder of an experience. I think it says a lot that Tolkien spent most of his life being a pacifist afterward. Right. Because... 
this stuff was just horrific. And I, I think that that really, you could see it in his work. You could see it in the way he views the world. And uh, so that's why it's so important that we're talking about this stuff. And it was a, it was like really the, it was the first mechanized war where you actually had machines of war at scale uh, uh, doing this stuff. And I think I remember uh, in the Jackson films and, and reading the books with uh, Sauron and and uh, the way mm-hmm. that you know they created industry to create yeah. a you know a, a war machine, literally a machine, which. Like the ants were like aghast by right because all mm-hmm. of their forests are being ripped up and nature is being destroyed and so this goes into some of the point counterpoint stuff that Tolkien does and embedded deeper in his work where he's you know giving you one thematic element and then bringing up the counterpoint to it and contrasting them. I should add too to that that his friend, uh, the first friend that died, was killed in a machine gun raid where where people were just being gunned down in, right. in mass numbers for the first time in war. Right. Yeah. So I think you're right. Yeah, in the Battle of the Somme in that area, that's like when we think of World War One. that's where it was happening. Like, that's where we think of trench warfare. That's what was happening in that battle uh, at that yeah. scale. Yeah. Now it's horrible. Yeah. Um, speaking of trenches, Tolkien yes. gets trench fever in October 19, uh, 1916. And he's sent away to receive treatment in France. He's not recovering in France, so he's sent back to England. And that's the last time he's ever sent back to the front. He never sees war again. So trench fever is actually a bacteria that's carried by body lice. Um, Hmm. And at the time, I did a little reading on this, they didn't know what was causing it, why all these these men were were falling ill. And I guess I read one statistic where up to a fifth of both both armies uh, were completely out of commission because uh, of trench fever. It's crazy. Yeah. And uh, at the time, they didn't have any um, known cure for it. You just had to recover on your own. I think the mortality was very low. But like with somebody like with Tolkien, it took a very long time for him to recover on his own. Because uh, and now I think they can just use some antibiotics to, to uh, treat it. But back then you just had to, you know, it was just your constitution. Could you could your body, you know, fight the infection? Uh, and it took Tolkien, Tolkien just a, a long time to do that. Yeah, it took him a couple months, and he did recover fully, which is great. Yes. Uh, Otherwise, we would not be having this podcast. It's true. And uh, in December, he's recovered, but he receives a letter from Christopher Wiseman, another one of the the Mm. T-Club, informing him that G.B. Smith had died. Mm -hmm. That's the the man he was in the same uh, major group as. Right. And just before G.B. Smith had left to go on his final mission, he wrote Tolkien one last letter. Mm-hmm. Which I think you've uh, copied out for us here, which uh, I'll read uh, a little bit of a quote from. Uh, it's a little bit, uh, it's not long, but it's, it's, it's not just short. It's powerful, though. My chief consolation is that if I am scuppered tonight, I am off duty in a few minutes. There will still be uh, left a member of the great TCBS to voice what I dreamed and what we all agreed upon. For the death of one of its members cannot, I am determined, dissolve the TCBS. Death can make us loathsome and helpless as individuals, but it cannot put an end to the immortal four. May God bless you, my dear John Ronald, and may you say the things I have tried to say long after I am not there to say them, if such may be my lot. Yours ever, GBS. Wow. I got a little chills there reading that. Yeah, I mean, 
I, I don't think you can overstate how impactful this was for Tolkien and how this loss really affected him. Not just of him, but the other member of the of the TCBS. And I, I think that you know when you're when you're watching Boromir say goodbye to, yeah. to Aragorn. Wow. Yeah. You know, my captain, my king. That's mm. it's the same feeling. It's that please go finish what I couldn't. Right. And they really, yeah, they really were driving forces on each other uh, of inspiration and and uh, creativity. Mm. Yeah, I think too something that I've seen, you know, as we're you know doing the research for this and you know googling around and stuff, you see a lot of people like, oh, well, is is Lord of the Rings about war and about wartime experience? And and I, to me, as much as the war. As, as Tolkien's war experience has an impact and an influence on the story lore, it's not just all about war, though, either. Right. I think as we, we talked about in the prologue uh, episode about Tolkien the man, he was a whole and complete person. And so he's bringing all of his experiences into his writing and into his creativity. Yeah. And I no doubt that a lot of Lord of the Rings is probably him working out a lot of his thoughts and feelings and emotions about, uh, about his wartime experience. Um, and I just, I, I just really appreciate the way that he integrates it. So that it's not like, Oh, this is just me working out my, my wartime issues, but this mythology that he's created is just so great and whole and encompassing of all of these different human experiences. Right. And there's that, essence of truth there right you know how he's trying to pull truth out of this mythology yeah who is the hero of the lord of the rings and mm. how how does that how does sauron really get defeated in the, mm. the lord of the rings is through acts of mercy through the mm. mercy that frodo shows to Gollum, through the kindness that sam shows to frodo and, and i think that so, tolkien after this sees fellowship sees this kindness as the key to saving the world not war. And when you look at uh, the relationship uh, between Aragorn and um, Legolas and uh, Gimli, right? You know, three mm. three people uh, from vastly different experiences and backgrounds who are, you know, joining together in, in common purpose. Right. And we even have that in this episode today with the, the joining of men and elves and some dwarves. Right. Exactly. All right, so should we talk a little bit uh, about some of the background themes? We've got the weakness of the will of men, <laughs> kind of point-counterpoint <laughs> here, and yeah. then the loss of, um, uh, what do we say? Loss of loved ones. Loss of loved ones, yeah, which is very poignant in this. You know, I think that we've talked a lot about the loss of loved ones already, but... Yeah, agreed. I think it's just, he, he really felt that loss. I mean, you know, in his childhood, he loses his mother... Right. He loses some of his best friends in the war. He later finds fellowship in the Inklings. He loses C.S. Lewis eventually. At uh, C.S. Lewis is only in his mid-60s, I believe. Right. So Tolkien is no stranger to loss, and I think that that's reflected in The Lord of the Rings and even today when we talk about the last alliance of men and elves and the loss of some of the characters there. I, I think that some of the characters' motivations can be explained by their trauma. Mm. And he's taking that from his own life. Yeah, exactly. But we also have the weakness of the will of men, and that's that's a little <laughs> bit of the flip side. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, and we see we uh, we're living in a world of, uh, of uh, that's currently being affected by that, aren't we? I think so. I, I think we're always living in that. And yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you you see through this story, you see constantly men failing to overcome their desire for power, failing to overcome uh, the desire to dominate, and sort of not being able to do the right thing in the face of a tough decision. Mm. Right. But you also see them sometimes overcoming that. So keep an eye out for that weakness of the will of men. You know, we talked about last time the dwarves were not so easily dominated. The men are very easily dominated by the rings. Keep an eye on that as we go through this story. Sounds good. All right. Well, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, let's talk about the last alliance and the war against Sauron. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, and we're back. So, John, the last alliance of elves and men? Men and elves, elves and men. The whole deal. Yeah, this is it. Like, And we should probably hang, I, I know we maybe have said this uh, a little bit earlier, we should hang this warning again. This is some spoilery territory that potentially... We could be seeing in season four, season five uh, of this show. Yeah, this looks to be the end game kind of thing. Although the battle that we're seeing, the end of it shows up in that intro of the Lord of the Rings with Isildur. So it's stuff that people generally know the rough edges of, but we're going to be going into deep detail here. Right. And they still have a lot of latitude in terms of how they're going to tell this story mm-hmm. and how and what characters they're going to put into conflict and how th- certain things are going to resolve. So while there's some spoilerly warnings in general, yeah, we've already – if you've seen the Peter Jackson movies, then you've seen some of this uh, action already. Right. All right. So um, Sauron has a ring. Sauron does have a ring, <laughs> as we as we know. Uh, yes. from, from previous episodes. Uh, Sauron's got his ring, and the elves, we talked about last time how Sauron had sort of infiltrated the elves, but we've got to catch them up a little bit, because we uh, we didn't get to quite the end of how Sauron has interacted with them. Okay. So Sauron had put on that ring we talked about, and that alerts the elves, that alerts the ring bearers that, hey, uh, this guy Anatar, he's up to no good. He's not really Anatar. He's... Sauron. Mm-hmm. So they sense that and they immediately remove the rings, but Sauron also senses them and he's like, oh man, they know me now. My whole plan, it's all over. So I'm going to go destroy Oregion. So that city Oregion that Celebrimbor ran uh, gets attacked by Sauron. Okay. And Celebrimbor is killed in that process. Uh oh. 
Celebrimbor was the grandson of the of which Feanor. Uh, right. The creator of the Silmarils, right? And so Celebrimbor is the guy who made the elven rings. Got it. Yeah, right. Yeah, and he uh, yeah, he was into smithing and then uh Sauron and his guys as a um uh, as a smithy dude um taught him um a lot of fancy tricks about ring making. Exactly. Right. And so Elrond was there trying to help out Aregion get back, get Sauron back, uh, but they weren't successful. But he says, you know what, I'm one of the leaders of the Noldor now. I need to help get these people to safety. So he creates the last homely house, which is a term you'll have heard if you've read The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings um, or watched the movies. The last homely house uh, is Rivendell, sometimes called Imladris in Elvish. Right. And it is that city that you see quite mm-hmm. all over the place. Right. A pretty nice place. Yeah. So we'll probably see the founding of Rivendell on the show at some point. That would be cool. That would be very cool. Yeah. And uh, so now we have three home bases for elves, at least these Western elves, the Noldor, the Sindar, right. uh, the Sylvan elves. And that is Linden, the Grey Havens. Those, that's where okay. they're sailing off. And that's where Gilgalad right. is. Then we have Rivendell, run by Elrond. Right. And we have Lothlorien, where uh, Galadriel is probably at at this point. But she's not really okay. running it yet, unless they change that for the show. Interesting. This will be a little bit dated if you're listening to this podcast in the future. But there was just a bunch of uh, production stills released. And uh, we, we've seen uh, Galadriel uh, in her warrior princess phase uh, and some of the stuff that they've just released. So I'm kind of excited to see what they do with that and with Lothlorien. Yeah, me too. I'm a fan of the warrior Galadriel interpretation that they're doing. 100%. Uh, I know that there's been some debate about it, but I'm a fan of it. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's see what we we get here. And uh, I guess on that note, it's it's like the elves decide to fight Sauron now. They know what's up and they figure they probably got to do something about it. Yeah, so Sauron's attacking them and antagonizing them and they're saying... All right, we got to do something about this because this is not sustainable. Right. Uh, but we have another faction, another big group, and that's the men. We haven't talked about them since Chapter 2, The Fall of Numenor. Right. So where do these things line up? So with like the, the, the death of Celebrimbor and then the men and Numenor, how do these things kind of line up? What's a, what's a couple of points that we can connect these two groups to? So Sauron had created the rings and had this whole attack on Eregion before he even went to Numenor. Oh, wow. So this happened way before. Right. Oh, I, so we right. backed up a little bit. Uh, but okay. now we're going to catch the men back up. Okay. Uh, because Sauron went to Numenor. We talked about that whole thing. They fell. Sauron was caught in the drowning, but he survived. He just can't change back into a fair form after that. So he had tricked okay. the elves before this in his fair form. Now he's stuck in this like great, terrible lord form, his trademark, I'm the big bad guy look. <laughs> yes, the one that we know, that we see, we've seen visually. Right. Classic Sauron. Yes. And so we have to catch the men up after they left Numenor. Because remember, we had this group of the faithful who escaped at the last minute the fall of Numenor. Right, yep. So the faithful, remember, are Elendil, which was the son of Amandil, and his son, Isildur, and his other son, Anarion. Okay. So these are the three leaders of the Numenorians who escaped. They created two new kingdoms when they came to Middle-earth, and they're called Gondor and Arnor. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. We know Gondor, right? We know Gondor. That's, you know, uh, Minas Tirith. We get to run by Denethor and his son Boromir and his son Faramir uh, at the time of the Lord of the Rings. Arnor, though, is in the north. And at the time of the Lord of the Rings, it doesn't really exist anymore. It's kind of fallen. So that watchtower, would that have been part of Arnor? Is that the kind of lands where we find, um, um, oh, what's his name? The ranger running around. Aragorn? <laughs> Aragorn, yes, I can't believe it. That's okay. His name. That's okay. Where uh, where Strider is running around? Is that like was that Arnor? That kind of area? Uh, yeah. So it was north of Gondor, and there were a lot of Numenorean ruins over there because okay. they had uh-huh. built up all these fortresses both before and after the fall of Numenor. Interesting. Okay. Right. So Isildur and Anarion uh, ruled together um, in Osgiliath, which is if you. Remember, in The Lord of the Rings, if you've seen the extended editions, uh, Boromir sort of retakes this ruined city, and that is Osgiliath. Yeah, that was a great battle scene. Yeah, yeah, that was a very cool scene there. Okay, so that's Osgiliath. That's sort of like a city near by Minas Tirith. Right. It's pretty nearby. It, w- it used to be the main capital of basically the two kingdoms. Okay. Uh, but... Uh, at the time of the Lord of the Rings, it was not really controlled by Gondor anymore. Right. It's kind of a no man's land. Right. Uh, Okay. They create other strongholds too. Mm -hmm. So you have Minas Ithil, which is Isildur's city. It's the tower of the rising moon. I don't, I don't think I've heard of that one at all. Where Do you, do you have an idea of where that is? Yeah. Well, in the, at the time of the Lord of the Rings, it's called Minas Morgul because Sauron has taken it over. Oh! Yeah, so that's like in Sauron's territory now. <laughs> Got it, okay. And we also have Minas Anor, which is belonging mm-hmm. to Anarion. Okay. And that is the Tower of the Setting Sun. I don't know that one either. Uh, Minas Anor is eventually renamed Minas Tirith. And so we, oh. we do know that one uh, just by a different name. Okay, interesting. Very cool. And, All right. and then the last one you might recognize is Orthanc. Uh, in Isengard, mm-hmm. that was an unbreakable stone fortress that Saruman hides out in at the at the time of his demise in The Lord of the Rings. Okay, so the Numenorians had brought with them the seven Palantiria, the seeing stones. Oh, those are the stones that uh, uh, Saruman had. Right, exactly. And also Denethor had one. Uh, there were seven right. of them originally. Most of them are lost at the time of The Lord of the Rings. Okay. Uh, and as we know, they can sort of communicate with each other, but... A, a person of virtue and skill could use them to see things far off, whether in place or time. So they were actually much oh. more powerful in their day when people knew how to use them. Wow, okay. And you, maybe you had to be of uh, Numenorean strength or, or skill, sort of of virtue? I, I think the elves could have used them too like that. I mean, they, they were the ones okay. who created them as well. Uh, but... In general, people have forgotten how to use these the right way by the time of the Lord of the Rings. Right. And then there's only two left at that time. So, okay. Right. Um, and they also brought with them the white tree. Uh, remember, mm-hmm. Isildur had saved that tree from uh, yep. the king's court. So he plants that in Minas Ithil. Okay. And the men, because they're so far-seeing, begin to perceive that Sauron is back in Barad-dûr, that he's survived the fall of Numenor, he's back and better than ever in his terrible lord form, and he uh, is going to cause them trouble. So we've basically caught up at this point from where we were uh, with the men last time we saw them. Okay, so there's a, actually kind of lot, a lot going on here. 
Yeah, uh, people have been busy. So they've founded two kingdoms. Yeah. That's the main thing you need to know is they founded these two <laughs> kingdoms, they've settled in, and they're starting to get a little ticked off about Sauron too. Okay. All right. So then Sauron, meanwhile, is busy. Sauron is busy, and he's creating a huge army uh, of men from the south and the east. Uh, also, mm-hmm. some Numenorians who were there before the fall of Numenor, right. who had already set up fortresses in Middle-earth before the fall. Right. And uh, also his standard orc followers, etc. Uh, and then there are two great Haradrim men, which are sort of these, like, southern men. Uh, and okay. they're captains in Sauron's armies. Uh, Herimor and Fuinor. I don't know if I'm saying mm-hmm. that latter one right, but somebody will probably okay. write in and tell me. <laughs> probably. <laughs> Do we know if we're going to see these guys in the show, or is that is it still too early for us to know? Well, they haven't been cast yet, but this is we're talking endgame stuff, so they could okay. cast that season four and probably be fine. Right. Okay. Uh, so Sauron is getting busy, so he's going to start attacking. He had already attacked the elves, remember, but now he's going to attack the men, and he attacks the city of Minas Ithil. And he okay. again destroys the white tree. Oh. Isildur, the sly guy he is, comes <laughs> in, <laughs> swoops in, and gets a seedling and saves it. Okay. Well, he's got faith. He's got he's his faith. faithful. Yep. Sauron attacks Osgiliath, uh, but is driven back into Mordor by Anarion. Okay. And Gilgalad and Elendil had become besties at this point. Uh, mm-hmm. They're very close. They They... Uh, you know, Elendil had been a friend to elves when he was in Numenor, and that's the same thing now that he's in Middle-earth. Right. Uh, so they have a little chat, and they say, you know, Sauron's really becoming a huge problem. We're going to have to do something about this. And they get together, and they create the greatest army seen since the Valar took down Morgoth in the First Age. Big army. Big army of mostly men and elves. Uh, but also we know that at this point... Uh, Middle-earth is becoming divided between Sauron and the forces of good, or the forces of the free peoples of Middle-earth. And so the elves are all on the good side, right? Because they just absolutely hate Sauron, and elves are supposed to be men before the fall in in Tolkien's vision, so they're all going to do the right thing. Right. Men are going to mostly go to uh, Sauron, you know, the the south and the eastern right. men. But this western men, the Numenorians and those who live under them, they're going to the go with Gilgalad and Elendil. Right. And where are the dwarves in all of this? The dwarves mostly sit out. But okay. the dwarves that were next to Eregion, Khazad-dûm, remember that's the great kingdom that becomes Moria, that becomes ruins by the time of the Lord of the Rings, uh, they're mm-hmm. going to be led by Doran, and mm-hmm. they're going to fight alongside the men and the elves. Okay. So we get some dwarves on the side of men and elves, but some some dwarves side with Sauron. Some dwarves do. We don't really have a lot of writing about that, but you know okay. they could, they could put that into the show if they want. Okay, interesting. All right, so we got some some latitude there for the in production. Mm-hmm. All right, so we've got this massive army uh, heading down to take on Sauron before the Black Gates. I'm guessing. Right. So they march to the Black Gate. Uh, Daggerlad is where is what the Great Battle Plain is called. Uh, okay. And they go from Rivendell to Daggerlad, the Battle Plain, uh, to have this battle. Mm-hmm. So Gilgalad is wielding his spear Eglos, and Elendil is wielding his sword Narsil. 
and they lead their armies to victory against the Orc host and against the men who were there, and they just keep beating back Sauron's armies and winning. Okay, and isn't Narsil the sword that Aragorn picks up in Rivendell, the the one that's broken? Absolutely it is, and, okay. and Elrond has had it for quite a while, but Aragorn's going to get that back eventually, but yep, this is the one. Right, yeah. Okay, got it. So the last alliance surrounds Barad-dûr. Remember that's Sauron's big tower in Mordor, right? And they besiege Sauron for seven years. God, I hope they don't do that in the TV show. <laughs> that's I, yeah, probably not. And then this is kind of where um, you know we can definitely see Tolkien's wartime experience infused into the storyline. I would say so. Yeah, I mean. As we talked about, Tolkien saw the horror of war, right. and he knew that a siege was not going to be bloodless. And Sauron is uh, sending out ranged weapons, basically. He's using fire, darts, and bolts to kill as many of the men and elves that is, as he can. Right. So very much sort of uh, this artillery and, and this uh, ruined plane and, yeah, uh, mass casualties. Right. And then we have this loss, as we talked about loss in the theme section. Uh, mm-hmm. of Anarion. Anarion is killed in the Valley of Gorgoroth during the siege, and Isildur loses his brother. That sounds very ominous. <laughs> the Valley of Gorgoroth, right? That does not sound like a place that I want to die. <laughs> Sauron has finally come out to play, and Anarion is dead, so he attacks Elendil and Gilgalad, and they're fighting their butts off. They get killed in the process, but they strike a killing blow on him, and he falls. Elendil then falls on his sword and shatters it. Okay, which is Narsil, right? That's Narsil. Know that where that sh- shows up later. Yep. Mm-hmm. And Isildur takes the hilt of Narsil and cuts off Sauron's finger with the ring on it. Takes it for its own, for his own. Right. So Sauron's spirit leaves his body. Right. Sauron goes into hiding, and the Second Age comes to an end. Well, okay, and that's our point. That's our, sort of our aim point for this five season series of rings of power is they're trying to match up to that target of this end of the second age. Yeah. I could see them going as far as um, sort of the last things that we see of Isildur in the Lord of the Rings, which is, you know, when he struck down. Uh, But I I can't imagine them going farther than that. Right. Yeah. It'll be, uh, it'll be interesting to see how they play it and, and how far they, they take it. So, okay. Great. Well, that is a lot. And uh, we've got, uh, we're almost to the end of our journey. We are. We've got uh, one chapter left, The Aftermath, Chapter 6. Yeah, we've just got to catch up. We're going to do some linking up with The Third Age, and we're going to sort of connect all this stuff to The Lord of the Rings and see how this journey takes us, see where this journey takes us. And then I think we're also going to talk a little bit about uh, Tolkien and his um, uh, his relationship with his son, Christopher, who really, without Christopher, we would not even be able to be talking uh, in depth like we are now. Yeah, Christopher is responsible for it all, really. Yeah, pretty awesome. Okay, great. Well, we'll see you on the next chapter then. The Second Age Podcast is produced by the Lorehounds and published by Bald Move. You can send questions and feedback about this podcast to secondage at baldmove.com. For more Rings of Power content, subscribe to Dug Too Deep on your favorite podcast app. Ad-free versions of this and all other Bald Move podcasts can be yours by going to patreon.com slash baldmove. 
check the show notes for reading recommendations and more info. Thanks for listening.